Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, a podcast presented by Lucy. This podcast is about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Today, we're joined by Joe Cohen. Hi, Joe. Hey, how you doing, David? Thanks very much for being here. So, Joe is a thriving entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and he is the CEO of Self-Hacked, Self-Decode, and Lab Test Analyzer. That's uh, a lot of companies. Yeah, we actually just uh, put them under a parent company called Genius Labs, and uh, right now, you know, I'm running the parent company, and we did that in order to get investment, essentially. That's awesome. So, uh, for those who may not be familiar about your background or familiar with your background, maybe you can give us kind of a, a brief tour to how you got to uh, be running these three companies or, or now this larger parent company. Yeah. So, uh, growing up, I had a lot of health issues, chronic health issues, but it wasn't a diagnosable condition, really. There was no clear diagnosis. Like, I didn't have cancer or anything like that, but it was kind of things that were just preventing me from being able to work productively, go to school productively, you know, basically live, you know, date or do anything that, you know, people in their 20s do, right? So, um, yeah, so I felt that I was being held back a lot and the doctors didn't really know what was going on or how to help me. And so I kind of just went in circles and I said, okay, this is not the solution for me. So that's where the idea of self-hack came from. It's like, well, I got to self-hack myself, right? And, you know, and, and so the concept was, before I even got better, the concept, my idea was, if I just try everything under the mark, you know, everything under the sun, I should find, you know, at least 10, 20 things that are going to help me and that I'll be able to perform better. And if you just find one thing, that improves your performance that could offer dividends over a lifetime so i figured i'll go on this you know one year experimental binge and i already had some background i was always like into health i was doing a lot of reading but it was just that one period one year period where my health issues all got worse it took a you know i took a crash and then that's when i realized like i gotta just go all out here all my focus all my energy trying everything doing as much research as possible. And so at that point, that's when I started having breakthroughs, like systematically trying one thing at a, at a time and learning what worked for me, what didn't. And then since then, I've still been experimenting, but it was ju it's just a lot more passive rather than active, you know. Sure. So uh, to the extent that you're willing to share, you know, what kind of health problems, what was the kind of moment that made you realize that, you needed to spend some serious time hacking yourself, and and what were what would be an example of uh, some kinds of things that helped you? These are uh, chemicals or herbs or, or what what sorts of things are we talking about here? Yeah, so the health issues that I had was um, it was uh, fatigue, insomnia, brain fog, gut problems. So you can say IBS various other gut issues, bloating. I had um, anxiety, mood disorders, um, yeah, attentional issues, so I couldn't focus on things. Set, you know, uh, information processing, I would like 
I wouldn't be able to absorb information. Um, and, you know, in, in various ways I was, you know, intelligent. I, w I realized I was intelligent, but I wasn't, like, absorbing. There was, there was some issue that I knew was occurring. Uh, and so these, yeah, th these cluster of issues, you know, th there was none, none of them were diagnosable except maybe if I, you know, I went to a you know, psychologist and said, yeah, okay, you've got anxiety. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, everybody has anxiety. Uh, you know, what he said, and he said I had anhedonia or something like that or dysphoria or whatever it was. Yeah, I realized my mood's not great. I got anxiety and I got all these other issues. <laughs> so that's, but actually, um, I at, at some point I did an experiment where I start to get like, really bad neuroinflammation. And there were other issues too. I, when I would exercise, I would get winded. Um, sometimes I'd get serious headaches after exercise, which I learned after what that was. But it's just these cluster of issues that, uh, yeah, th that, that, that was the cluster. And so that happened around uh, the age of 25. Um, right now I'm 32. And so when, when the issues, I was getting pretty bad neuroinflammation as well at that point, whereas it was even worse than before. Before I was getting brain fog, but this was, there was something amiss here. So what is neuroinflammation? What are the symptoms of that? Um, so I, w I felt like my brain um, was was inflamed in some ways. And, and I'll give you an example of how that, that you know, um, one example of that. I would be, let's say I was in school, I would be in like an old building. M I started, my brain started to like malfunction. I, I felt like the bad air in the building was affecting me in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, like I was able to notice that things were just not right here. And so, yeah, I mean, once, once I realized for certain that this wasn't just, you know, get more sleep, like, this is how everyone is, you know, they're just, you know, sometimes people just can't think well or whatever. Because mm -hmm. it's hard to take your personal state and try to understand what other people's state is. I would actually always ask people, like, do you ever get tired after meals and <laughs> stuff? <laughs> Some people, half the people would be like, huh? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, maybe if I, you know, really pig out or something. The other half would be like, yeah, it happens. I get tired all the time. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out what, what's, what's normal, what's not, that was something that I was trying to do for a bunch of years. But at some point I realized this is not normal. I know that this is a biological malfunction that I have to change one way or another. And so that was my goal. You know, I'm going to do everything that it takes because without my health, there's no, I won't be able to work effectively. I won't be able to do anything effectively. So, and, and, and in hindsight, all those assumptions were actually all right. I did have issues that needed to be fixed. Um, and they, I, if I, d doing all the experiments actually helped me figure out 20 to 30 things or whatever, just a cluster of things that helped me out a lot. And, and those are paying dividends over a lifetime. That assumption turned out to be correct. And um, yeah, and, and just in general, like, that was the important thing to do for me at that time. I, if I would have invested my time doing other things, the return would have been much lower. Sure. So let's get into the specifics of what you found helped you, and uh, what let's you know. I, I see you know on the website 
uh, on Self-Hacked, you have uh, a number of favorite biohacks, which uh, we can go through. Are, are those some of the things that you found helped you out? Yeah. So in terms of what helped me out the most, if we were to just talk about one thing, I think you know, everyone's different. You'll notice that what helps one person out the most is a little different than what helps someone else out the most, mm -hmm. right? We all respond differently to different drugs and different supplements and just different diets, really. That's why some people lose weight on one diet. Other people don't, right? Sure. So for me, dietary factors happen to be the most important, where I was negatively responding to a bunch of inflammatory components. They were f inflammatory for me, not for everyone else necessarily. So like what? So I realized that I am sensitive to gluten. Okay. Um, there's like different tiers of it. So there's very sensitive to gluten, dairy, and eggs. And very sensitive in the sense that those things actually have multi-day effects, yep. right? So there's things that can affect me for like three days, four days, and then there's things that affect me short term, a couple hours, maybe six hours, whatever it is, right? Um, so those things would have, you know, those are probably the worst for me because they, they cause immune reactions that last days. Um, other things like grains in general are not good for me. And those, those can also last like maybe two days or something, right? Not as long as the other ones, but they, they last some time depending on which grain and how much I have of it. But the, the effects definitely there, you know, other grains were not good for me. Beans in general are not very good for me. And so did you discover all these things through running your own form of an elimination diet? Did you see an allergen or an allergy specialist or how, how did you figure this out? Well, I did it just based on an elimination diet, really. Um, what my assumption was that if I wanted to be able to tell what was working and what wasn't, I had to just eat that food or take that supplement in a high dosage or do something, just one thing at a time and try to, um, you know, not, not mix a bunch of variables. So would you just have rice and a gallon of milk in on one day? And no, I, like I might just, I might, I would have a meal of just rice Okay. <laughs> and water or something like that. Right. Something okay. I know is not going to affect me. And then you'd slowly add in, you'd say, I'm going to drink milk today or I'm going to have gluten today. Right. Essentially. But early on, I kind of realized that gluten. Yeah. So I would have bread. Right. Just wheat. Right. And and I saw, OK, what is just living on wheat? How do I feel like after a day? Mm -hmm. I felt terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, and then it's like, OK, just dairy. If I just consume a lot of dairy, how am I felt terrible? Um, and so just one food at a time, pretty much. Um, I mean, that's not the best way to do an elimination diet. So I didn't go about it in the best way, to be honest. But I did go about it in one way um the best way is to you know just consume like safe foods and then like a safe food might be just beef because very few people are sensitive to beef mm -hmm. and then you can you know branch out to other foods um but i didn't do it that way so it probably took me a lot longer um but in general yeah i i, I tried one food at a time and it was pretty clear after some time that you know, certain grains were worse than others, but, and then I, eventually I just said, okay, well, you know what, all, like, I'm, 
I'm having issues with all these grains. Whereas when I would just eat like meat or chicken mm-hmm. or fish, I didn't have the same issues. So what do you think about this carnivore diet that's starting to get popular now? So essentially, I kind of stumbled on a carnivore diet, uh, a carnivore type of diet without the name to it, right? Mm-hmm. And I called it the lectin avoidance diet because I knew one thing that I'm at least partially sensitive to is various kinds of lectins. And what is a lectin? A lectin is just a protein found in plants, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes animal foods as well, but mainly plants, dairy a little, but um, it, it's found and it's it evolved as a kind of protection to prevent plants from being eaten. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're a kind of toxin, right? So that's what... Yep. You know, ricin is a lectin found in a bean, right? And uh, they extract that to make po- a poison that can kill you. Uh, now, lectins, there's a whole bunch of different types of lectins. And uh, some are deadly. Some are, you know, there's no detectable harm. But they do stimulate the immune system. Mm-hmm. And they interact with people in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in general, most of them are not very good. I can't say all of them, but most of them are not very good. And that was the one identifiable factor that I realized this is definitely a problem for me within the foods I'm eating. And so I called my diet the lectin avoidance diet. Carnivore diet has a somewhat different appeal. You know, when people, when I see people into a carnivore diet, it often takes a more religious tone Mm -hmm. where they, they, they think that you know, our ancestors, this is how we're supposed to eat, mm-hmm. right? That's where these diets kind of tend to, they try to back it up with historical precedent. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, a, you know, uh, the Supreme Court trying to figure out laws and they're looking at precedents and what's supposed to be and what does the Constitution say and there's a truth, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there's, there's like this, you know, they, they see it as this is like fundamentally God-given, you know, truth that, humans are supposed to eat this diet i don't believe that i think everyone's different but it turns out for me that the a carnivore type of diet benefited me quite a lot okay great and so let's switch gears then so you figured out one of the things that helped you was a lectin avoidance diet and uh, you experimented with a a number of other things and that led you to start self-hacked and so how, do, how would you describe Self-Hacked to someone who hasn't visited the website? So Self-Hacked has, um, it's basically, a, a, to someone who didn't know anything about like biohacking or anything, I would say something like it's WebMD for millennials, right? Okay. You know, people don't want to go on WebMD anymore. It's just the, the content is not sourced very well. It's very shallow, very hard to get really good or unique information from the science. It's, sens- it's essentially doctors who learned things 20 years ago. Um, it's not even doctors writing most of it, but it's doctors looking over various random content. There's not really references. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, it's not updated. doesn't mm-hmm. take it directly from the scientific literature. Mm-hmm. It's not, you can't follow the, the, the information sources and see where it's coming from. Is this from <coughs> a quality study? What is this, right? So, so it's I mostly arguments from authority from the kind of the old medical establishment and exactly. self-hacked you designed to be more evidence or data driven. And from what I've seen, you tend to focus on particular 
chemicals or, or molecules of interest. And so um, what would be an example? Yeah, so we will dive uh, very deep into every supplement, every uh, drugs people are interested in, uh, you know, especially the our, our community uh, there. And then, you know, what various kinds of drugs? lab tests. So we, we, we have a post on nicotine, for example. Okay. Right. It's a drug of interest. And instead of just saying that nicotine is good or bad, right, we don't take a position on it. We just say what the science is and we bring down a bunch of references. So if you don't like a piece of information, you can look where we got it from. So we're not we don't have um, we're not very strong on editorials as in like this is what we believe. There's no thing on the site that we believe this generally speaking at least the, you know the de definitely the post from the past three years right but it's just here's what the sign says we break it down for the layperson to understand and uh you know so there's usually around 100 references per post and they're all they're going to the scientific literature they're not going uh to wikipedia or um any other site that you know that's not um you know, it's not going to WebMD or something. It's going directly to the scientific source. That makes sense. And so Self-Hacked was your first uh, company in, in the current uh, group of companies that you oversee. And so how did Self-Decode and, and Lab Test Analyzer get started uh, as part of this effort? So once uh, Self-Hacked was, um, you know, once once I started getting into that, I started realizing that you can release great content, very in-depth content on every post. But the problem that people are having is, number one, when you get to genetics or lab tests, it's really hard to piece single, you know, single pieces of information together. Like you could read all about a supplement, but it's hard to synthesize a bunch of different information, especially when it comes to genetics, right? We're talking about 10 million SNPs with these variations in the genome that are have become popular single nucleotide uh, nucleotide polymorphism there's, there's other variants as well but the the point is is that there's so many variants and uh, what I started seeing was a lot of non-scientific people come out and say this is what this variant means this is what that variant means so number one I saw there was a problem in the, the science of everything there was no thoroughness. People would focus on one SNP or, you know, one gene or five, you know, five SNPs or 20. And the problem is, is that if you have 10 million, what can you really learn from one, right? I mean, s sometimes you can learn things, right? You, you take whatever, you, sometimes you can learn things. And, and that's, and, and I think people have started doing that. They started learning one item at a time. Okay, MTHFR. I got, if I have this variation, I got to take methylfolate, right? And so some of those things are ha helpful, but that's obviously only a drop in the bucket, and that's literally a drop in the bucket, right? It's not a metaphor. <laughs> it's, sure. it's really a drop in the bucket. There could be other genes showing that you need less folate, right? Mm -hmm. Or And so that's where, um, you know, you, you also want to synthesize the information with your lab results. Things like if your homocysteine is normal, you probably don't need methylfolate, mm -hmm. right? And so synthesizing the genetics with the lab results could take someone decades or hundreds of years to really look through everything themselves. And so we 
I decided that we needed software in order to help people interact with their biological data, really, their genetics and their lab tests. So self-decode would give you access to your DNA and lab test analyzer would analyze the certain blood markers uh, that you're seeing in a particular snapshot when the blood is drawn? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so then, how do people make sense of these results? So, you know, um, basically, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of ways to do it, um, but there's things like polygenic scores where you, you know, we, we will analyze multiple, you know, hundreds of SNPs in a report, um, and, you know, w that, that involves hundreds of genes, and then we will, you know, we, we'll, we'll give um, a clear overview on what it means, but then we'll also take out the most interesting information when it comes to their SNPs and say, based on this variation that you have, you're more likely to do better with this, right? And how do you know what SNP pertains to what result? Where are you, where are you getting that um, evidence? It's all from the scientific literature. Okay. Yeah. So the, the fr from SNP to result, that's 100% from the scientific literature. And what we try to do is connect it to uh, what somebody should be doing to optimize their genetics. And the same with the labs, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and, and again, we, we present the information in a bunch of different ways, and we're soon going to be releasing a version 2.0, which is basically going to be leagues above what we have now but what we have now is like we have reports on given topics like for example we have a mood report that will tell you how to boost your mood based on your genetics which genes are ab you know abnormal that are contributing to your mood issues and which which um, lifestyle diet or supplement factors can you use to enhance your mood based on that information so it's more targeted and the other thing we do is, before we give any kind of recommendation, we make sure there's some kind of study that associates that behavior with an improvement in what, in your mood, let's say. Mm -hmm. So if it's a mood report, we, we filter it out to make sure that, you know, this has the potential to improve your mood. Let's say there was only a small pilot study, right? But then we go a step further and we connect it to the mechanism by which their genes are probably expressed. So, you know, if, if, if you have lower levels of this gene, it could cause worsened mood, and this, and this is how you would increase the gene. So we, we, we try to give recommendations based on multiple genes, and, um, and, and that way you can, you s it still requires some level of experimentation and uh, maybe discussing with a healthcare professional about if it's right for you, but it's giving you more targeted solutions. The other, we have another report uh, that is a cognitive function report. So it's basically how to improve your cognitive function based on your genetics. Uh, that will probably be released by the time this comes out. Um, and so that, it's, it, it, you know, we're, we're working based on the same premise. We look at the biochemistry of, you know, how a certain protein increases intelligence, and everything is referenced along the way, right? So we leave all the breadcrumbs that allow you to see where we're getting various kinds of information. You're not just trusting us. That makes sense. And so it seems like there probably, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
certain techniques or molecules of interest that probably work well for a broad spectrum of people. You mentioned eating beef might be an example of something that very few people are allergic to that's not likely to cause acute problems for folks. What would be some examples of these interventions that will work for a lot of people? And then what are some examples of some highly specialized interventions that you've seen? Well, I really do believe that, uh, I mean, there's some basic things that will help a lot of people. For example, exercise, right? You know, exercise is going to, who is it not going to, I mean, there's 1% of people that it might not help. But I really do believe that the new age of biohacking and, um, you know, self-hacking or whatever you want to call it, you really have to look into your genetics and your labs. And I'll give you an example. I, I found a gene, the, it's called the CNR1 gene. It's cannabinoid receptor 1. It sounds like the carnivore diet, right? Carnivore CNR1. Um, <laughs> but it's actually nothing to do with the carnivore. However, it does predict who will do well on a carnivore diet. And I have this variation that only 3% of the population has. And when I was doing a lot of consults, I always pe check people's genetics and I would make a guess whether their issues were as a result of diet and then I would look at their genetics and then I would see a very hard correlation between people who did well on a carnivore diet and people who had this variation. And biochemically it makes sense because the, the cannabinoid 1 receptor is very intricately involved in the immune system and how you react to all these plant compounds. Um, is it stimulated by THC or other exogenous cannabinoids? Yeah, so CBD and THC are examples of ways that you would stimulate it either directly or indirectly. So THC is a direct stimulator, and CBD is an indirect. If It actually blocks it in the short term. That's why it's better to take it together, so there's some blocking action. But indirectly, it upregulates the receptors. It increases the receptors. And then it also increases your internal cannabinoids. So it actually improves, you can say, the cannabinoid system. And, you know, when people find, including myself, that um, let's say if I have a reaction, the thing that makes the reaction go down the most is actually THC with CBD. It's one of the things. And so if I don't want to eat a, uh, a carnivore diet, I, I might be able to consume cannabis and uh, – alleviate some of my uh, inflammatory symptoms? A hundred percent, but I wouldn't recommend it fully or else you'll be a pothead. I mean, if you <laughs> want to, if, 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 that, if that's, you know, you can if you want, but for me, that's not an option, right? If I, I have a ton of work I need to get done, it's not an option to just take a lot of THC all the time every time I have a meal of something that I get inflammation from. So I do it in a very selective manner with the proper dosage, things like that, right? But this is an example of number one is how you can take a gene and learn how it can help better predict of whether, whether you'll do better on a carnivore diet. And then you know, the most vocal supporter of a carnivore diet is Michaela Peterson, and it turns out that she had this variation as well. And again, only 3% of the population has it. And I, I predicted that she would have it, and she did. So. <laughs> It was I was taking a risk of one out of 33 chance that she would have it. And I was right. 
And so to what extent is, for instance, what you just described used by clinical practitioners today or is uh, it, it must have some, there must be some knowledge in the, the clinical space to have had the study that showed this effect in the first place. How widespread is the knowledge uh, in the more traditional medical community or amongst kind of immunologists? How do you, how do you look at that? So it's not widespread at all, um, and the reason it's not widespread is because there's some gaps in the knowledge. Whenever you don't have hard clinical science on something, it's very hard to get widely accepted, right? For example, um, you know, the conventional medical establishment or even the, the U.S. laws, right, THC is a Schedule I, schedule one drug, mm -hmm. which means that it does not help with anything. Mm -hmm. There's no medical purpose for THC. Now, how many people do you know that are helped by THC in one way or another, right? Maybe it helps them sleep. It gets rid of their migraines. There's actually a lot of information related to that. There's some of it in the scientific literature. A lot of it is anecdotal. Well, there's state medical cannabis uses, just not federally, right? Yeah, but federally, th they're saying that the FDA is saying there's no sure. recognized usage for CBD, medical usage for THC. CBD, the, the story is starting to change a little, like seizures, mm. right? But nothing really other than epilepsy. So how did they identify that that SNP made people do better when they're on a carnivore diet? So that was not – okay, so let me just explain that that wasn't a scientific study. The sci there are scientific studies with that particular SNP in, and that show, for example, symptoms are – some of the symptoms correlate with, with the symptoms that people have when they're not on a carnivore – like with the people – for example, some of the symptoms I had when I wasn't eating a carnivore-like diet, right? So that's one uh, factor is there is some scientific information – within some of the SNPs. The other scientific inf information is related to just the basic biochemistry of how C the, um, the cannabinoid system works and what it does, how it lowers inflammation. That stuff is pretty accepted in, in the scientific establishment, right? The cannabinoid one receptor reduces inflammation. Um, and, yeah, and pot can in reduce inflammation, right? People take it for pain. Mm -hmm. They take it for a lot of inflammatory symptoms, rheumatoid arthritis. And so it, it helps reduce inflammation. Now, there's no uh, – now, a lot of it also is just my clinical – like my – me seeing a lot of people that do well on the carnivore diet and seeing that there's an extremely high percentage of these people who have this variation as well. And given how unlikely it is or rare it is, it seems like this wouldn't be a coincidence. Sure. So some of it is kind of my clinical anecdotal type of experience mm -hmm. uh, combined with some scientific literature and, and whatnot. But that obviously would be a far cry from what the FDA is looking for or for it to be uh, in established medicine. Now, there are a lot of things that, are, that have a lot more evidence within the genetic space. But even so, the, the clinical... Again, like to clinically validate something like that would be very hard. The only way you would be able to do it is to build a tool that – and then you did a clinical trial based on that. Uh, you know, you put people in one group. But it, that would only validate the, your tool, right? It's very hard to just validate all of the science. Sure. 
Yeah, and I mean, and uh, you hear this uh, again and again in nutritional interventions that there isn't much incentive for large companies to fund research that proves the efficacy of chemicals or naturally occurring molecules that are not really patentable, right? So, I mean, maybe uh, the beef manufacturers of the United States would be interested in funding a study showing that people do well on a (laughs) mostly beef diet, but there doesn't seem to have been uh, a ton of interest um, historically. Would you you say that's accurate? Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's no, there hasn't been any clinical trials. I mean, you have large communities of people who say they've been cured on a carnivore diet. Um, one of them. There are people who say they've been cured on a ketogenic diet. How many large-scale clinical trials do you have on the ketogenic diet curing anything other than epilepsy, mm-hmm. right? And and so, you know, the, the, the medical establishment is never going to say, hey, you should do a ketogenic diet I mean, not never, but it's just going to take too long mm-hmm. for them to make a recommendation and say you should do a ketogenic diet if you want to do this. And again, c- how well someone does on a ketogenic diet is going to have uh, is going to be impacted by their genes. There's genes related to PPAR alpha, which is involved in metabolism and how well you tolerate fats and how well you burn them. Right? And it's it's just a very complex network and. There's there's no question about it that the kind of medicine that we're doing today is is going to be extremely outdated because at some point and no matter who you speak to it, it's pretty clear people in the know really understand that it's not that far that we'll be able to look at your genes and really very highly accurately predict what you will do well on right and that's what we're working on it really is just a uh, it's a process though it's not something that we we either don't have or we have right you kind of chip away at it you try to get a little more accurate a little more you try to synthesize more information you try to get more and more data and over time that thing those things get more accurate uh through different ways there's there's a bunch of different ways that it could get more accurate and so it sounds like what you're saying is one of the ways that you see the future of nutrition and health moving is through personalized interventions and in essence you're running your own large observational study is that is that correct correct so the new system that we're building essentially is going to do that a lot better right there's a there's 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 a number of ways in which you can take someone's genetics and lab tests Mm -hmm. and try to figure out what they're going to do best from it Number one is you can look at, you know, we, we, we take from databases, a lot of databases out there with a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there's symptom data. Mm-hmm. We, we can see, for example, if you have the way the medical establishment works right now is if you have this X symptom, then you should do Y, right? If you have a heart attack, take stents. Mm-hmm. Heart attacks is basically a type of symptom, right? There's the something went wrong in your body, a symptom or condition. You have this, do that. Mm-hmm. That's one way of doing it, and it has validity. The problem is, is that there's a lot of other ways. Another way is to look at your genes, right? And there's different ways of looking at your genes. Sometimes there's studies that are clearly done that show if you have this kind of diet, you will do better if you have this gene or whatever. There's mm-hmm. variation. Other times, you would ha- try to infer it based on a bunch of different ma- information out there. Um, so, um, And then 
Yeah, and then there's lab data. And so, for example, I, I improved my health based on all the methods I'm talking about. I just didn't do it with software. And I think that was a serious limitation. Not everyone has enough time, the resources, or you know, has read 30,000 studies to try and put everything together as I did. And still there's, you know, there's obviously some pieces of data missing. But essentially I use my symptom data, right? Mm -hmm. What are my symptoms? What has been known to help that? I use my genetic data. In various cases I, I realized these genes are not working and it makes, you know, I, I had to synthesize it with how that works with my body and my symptoms. And, you know, and then I looked at my lab data and I'm still looking at my lab data and I use my lab data in order to improve upon things all the time, right? So I'll give you one example about how I use my lab data. Ghee uh, or saturated fats, right? This is a very big argument in the, in, in the keto community. Saturated fats, harmful or healthy? You know, we go back and forth. We don't know. Is everyone has a different opinion. There's different mm -hmm. studies. Sure. You, you cherry pick whichever study you want, and you'll be able to <laughs> make your case. For me, it increased my LDL cholesterol. And LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease and mortality. That means the risk of dying. The higher your LDL cholesterol, generally the higher your mortality above a certain limit. So let's say it depends on your age. It depends on different factors. But above 130 is already not good. And my LDL was above 130. And so I don't care what anyone says, the most reliable information for me is that my LDL is too high and a lot of studies are correlating that with heart disease or, um, you know, or, or, or just the, the risk of dying, right? So no ghee for you. I took out ghee, I replaced it with olive oil, LDL cholesterol, went down and obviously that works for me right sure. and, and and olive oil is very healthy you can't uh extra virgin olive oil you can't say like oh that's not healthy right so it's very healthy some people will say ghee is also very healthy and i didn't have any i didn't notice any negative effect from it but looking at the labs you can't argue with it yeah that makes sense to me and in terms of different dietary interventions i think that that can be very valuable and there seems to be low risk associated with that so you saw a result you substituted in olive oil instead of ghee how do you consider some of the other possibilities that uh come from people who who criticize some of the kind of early stage that we're in as far as analyzing genetic data some examples would be uh, i have a friend who's uh in his family there was a trait that was uh, essentially a clotting factor and so uh, a SNP that they recognized led to extra clotting, which was, uh, again, a heart attack risk. Mm -hmm. And so he fortunately didn't have it, but uh, that's an example to me of something that he only knew to look for because it had run in his family and, and one of his family members had had uh, some heart issues and they found out it was a result of this trait. So on one hand, maybe if someone took a genetic test, they would realize this much earlier than they otherwise would have because it's not a standard test that you would get when you get a physical, for instance. But uh, there are other things that you might have different traits that predispose you for uh, towards heart disease Then maybe you don't know what you can do aside from doing kind of all of the extra stuff that you're supposed to do to avoid heart attacks generally 
there's some sort of psychological toll that could be inherent uh, in that. And uh, there's other examples where what if the test is incorrect because there's an error in the test or something and someone thinks they have something and they worry about it or they if if someone thought that they had a BRCA gene and wanted to uh, undergo some sort of prophylactic double mastectomy, et cetera, how do you how do you kind of weigh the the the, the pros and, and cons from the system? Yeah, those are all good questions. Um, I'll try to parse them down. It seemed like there was a couple of them. In sure. One. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the questions it seemed like was. Um, you know, people could get freaked out by this information and they might not be prepared for it. Another question seems like, um, what if the, the information is incorrect? And so l let's just tackle that one first. Um, if the, inf I, so one thing that we, uh, that we have to, th there's different, when you talk about genetics, it's a massive field, right? Even genes, right? So you can have certain variations for APOE, for BRCA1, and let's say the clotting factor and certain, you know, there's a hand and in certain genetic disease or whatever, right? There's, there's, there's different levels of importance for different genes. Like some with the APOE and BRCA that really can increase your risk a lot. And so if someone finds out they have that, the first thing that they would, that I would do is verify the test, right? If you're getting something, so do it again, do it again, right? With a, with a very reliable source. Um, especially if, if you're going to freak out about it or you're going to take drastic actions. So I, you know, I would not rely on 23andMe or any of these companies to take medical actions, um, any kind of standard SNP chip scenario, right? Um, even if it's 99% correct or whatever it is, 99.9, .9, I would not trust it. I would get verified. Okay. Then what do you do after that, right? Um, I mean, you know, that's that's something that if I wouldn't uh, though I, I don't say think our genes are at the point where I would take drastic medical action if I was a woman and I had the BRCA gene I would not um, I would not cut my boobs off right what something that I Why would not? because I really think that there's other ways to handle that situation uh, that would be better right now Again, it it can get nuanced. Maybe if uh, both, you know, if my if my mom had cancer, breast cancer, and I had the gene, then it could be a little bit of a different situation, right? But what I would do is I would definitely get checked more frequently, and I would definitely focus my efforts on trying to reduce breast cancer. And so something like sulforaphane in broccoli sprouts is known to have very potent anti-cancer effects, right? Including in broccoli as well. So I would make sure I'm consuming broccoli sprouts every single day, right? Shouldn't you do that anyway? Yes and no. I mean, you have to <laughs> you have to pick and choose your battles. Shouldn't you do everything every day anyway? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, I should really exercise every day ev anyway and really go to sleep at the same time every day. There's a million things that everyone should do anyway. You got to pick your battles and 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 see what is the most relevant because we don't all have the most willpower to do everything correctly. Sure. So you got to pick and choose sometimes. So it, it could provide an extra motivational boost to do something that, that might be more bang for the buck for that individual person. Yeah. So that's how I see genes right now okay. at the current state of where we're at. I don't 
think that anyone should take drastic medical action based on anything that they find out, right? Mm -hmm. I think it should be a motivational tool to then do more research about how they can counteract these risks. And we released an APOE report mm -hmm. that deep that does a deep dive just into that gene. If you have that gene, there are actually a lot of ways to modify the risk. And, you know, instead of taking, you know, getting freaked out, I'm getting Alzheimer's because my risk of disease is now tw 12 times, <laughs> right? Instead of getting freaked out, there's ways that you can reduce that risk. And so I think it should be seen as a motivational factor. So number one, retest, make sure, especially if you're nervous about it. I personally wouldn't even retest because I, I would believe that, you know, I'm like there's enough things to do that I can modify the risk. Um, and, and anything, any action that I would do, any action that I would take based on my genes, it would have to be a healthy action anyway. Cutting your breasts off is not a healthy action, right? So uh, that's why I'm saying I wouldn't take that drastic of an action. It would have to be something that I would do anyway that's generally seen as healthy, right? Broccoli is healthy, right? Do you eat broccoli every day? Uh, no, but I <laughs> eat it a lot. <laughs> right. But I do you eat I broccoli sprouts every day? I had it today. You did broccoli sprouts. I had broccolini. Okay, but broccoli sprouts is actually way more potent than broccoli. Darn it. So, <laughs> it, but how many people do you know eat broccoli sprouts every day? Very few. Yeah, no, um, I, I would I don't have to anyone. survey on Facebook, <laughs> but it's probably not very many. Exactly. So, but I would see it as an empowering factor, and if it at motivates me to eat broccoli sprouts every day, there's no harm to it, and there's only like it really can reduce cancer risk. Based, you know, based, they'll do epidemiological studies and you'll see each cancer, like the rate goes down the more broccoli or broccoli sprouts you eat. Sure. Okay. So switching gears back to the sort of corporate side of things for a second, you have these interrelated companies that are trying to guide people towards healthy, uh, non-drastic interventions that, that may be able to help them optimize their health long-term based on some input from their genes, some input from their lab tests, and some self-reported data. And you're starting to wrap that and more tightly integrate across all of these different things into a nice kind of UX wrapper. Uh, and, and so what's the, what's the ultimate vision or goal? How do you guys make money now? What is, what is the sort of vision for this? Right. So like I said, there's different stages to this. I think along the way, you know, even if you're not at a stage where you can say, we can say with 100% certainty that this is exactly what you need to do to prevent this or to cure that or whatever, right? We're not at that stage. Science isn't there. Nobody's there. It won't be there for a while, right? But we are at a stage to say something like, you know, if you have this gene that, uh, if you have this carnivore gene, it's probably a try out the carnivore diet. If you have methyl, this MTHFR gene, check your homocysteine. Try methylfolate, see if you do better, right? Again, it's still in the stage where you want to only take healthy actions, right? Methylfolate's not dangerous. So if you take it and see how it works for you, there's no harm and only benefits, mm -hmm. right? And then if it works for you, it's something that could work for you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would see it right now. Um, like you mentioned, nothing that I would take drastic medical action on, but something that would motivate people uh, and something that would hopefully give people some guidance on what they should at least try out first if they're going to be experimenting with, with things, right? So 
methylfolate, if you have the MTHFR gene, would be something that should be high up on your list of things to experiment with. Does it mean you'll do well with it? Not necessarily, no. If you have the carnivore diet gene, CNR1, that those variations, does that mean you'll do well on the carnivore diet? Not 100%, but try it out, right? Mm -hmm. what, what's the downside? So you ate meat for a month, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to die. <laughs> yeah. So, um, But maybe long term there could be some effects from that that you know we're not aware of. I mean, I think that's one of the critiques of the carnivore diet is that uh, perhaps you, know, you can live on it for a month, but maybe there's some long-term health effects that we're not aware of. Well, um, I, so I don't buy that so much if you do it right. Mm -hmm. I think most people are not doing it right on mm -hmm. the diet. Mm -hmm. um, but if you do it right, which I do, mm -hmm. I don't believe that so much. So there are negatives to the diet. We, we actually recently released three posts on it. Mm -hmm. One um, about the benefits, mm -hmm. one about the dangers, mm -hmm. <laughs> one about um, uh, basically dissecting arguments by carnivore diet proponents, which mm -hmm. ones are valid, which ones are not. Sure. And sometimes they make valid ones, sometimes they're invalid. Mm -hmm. So we just actually we just look at the signs for all of them. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the carnivore diet has some benefits. Mm -hmm. We know it has negatives where mm -hmm. there's – We've I've we've identified 17 possible deficiencies that you're at increased risk for with this kind of diet. And you might see that in the lab work if you're following your labs. Maybe yes, maybe not. Uh -huh. um, it depends how. But if you even if you don't, I think it will show up in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. So again, following the carnivore diet, your protein consumption goes up, mm -hmm. and when your protein consumption goes up, your blood urea nitrogen goes up. Mm -hmm. That and blood urea nitrogen is associated with risk of dying, mm -hmm. right? And so my blood urea nitrogen was higher. I, and the way I brought that down was consuming more olive oil. Now every meat I eat, I just pour on olive oil mm. in order to get my calories but reduce the protein consumption. Do you track your overall calories? Do you no. track your macros? No, I don't track any macros, but... Do you track your weight, your body I weight? I do track my weight, yeah. Mm -hmm. I track my weight... Um, I track my lab results, and I make sure that they're in the optimal range. If they're not, I get them there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can argue that sometimes it's not causal, but I found that most of the times, um, yeah, I think a lot of the times, most of the time it probably is causal where, you know, if your uh, bun is higher, um, it's, it indicates that your kidney function is not going to be as good. Um, and there was a study that came out that found higher risk of dying from people who ate a low-carb diet, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'll find other studies that show no higher risk. It's really just something that you have to really – number one is I want to make sure that I'm not deficient in anything. And not always will the deficiencies end up on your blood results, mm -hmm. right? You can't detect everything from your blood. You just can't. So I want to make sure that I'm being safe, making sure I have no deficiencies – that's number one. Uh, so when on the diet, I make sure I take all the nutrients that are potentially missing. I will consume fiber in the form of resistant starch, purified, um, and so and, and then also insol insoluble uh, insoluble fiber in the form of psyllium husk, mm -hmm. which I don't have a reaction to. Mm -hmm. So I'm making sure I get fiber. I'm counteracting a lot of the negative effects that theoretically a carnivore diet would have. That you can't clearly see in a, you know, we don't have clinical trials on it. 
Have you uh, seen or uh, on social media or at all uh, the Vertical Diet uh, by Stan Efferding, which is kind of like a modified uh, carnivore diet? Mm, I I have not, but I probably can assume what the diet is. It's basically of eating everything from nose to tail. No, no. So oh, okay. that no, that is a form of <laughs> sounds of like vertical diet. though. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. That would kind of be horizontal diet, I feel like. If oh it's yeah, four may, legs. yeah. If it's more <laughs> like the horizontal diet. Okay. Uh, well, we we should we should talk more about that, um, you know, off air because um, it's uh, it's a really long story, and I'm curious to see what you think about it. But essentially, it it uses beef as kind of one of the main protein sources. Uses white rice because it doesn't have a lot of the uh, sort of lectins and things like that, and then uh, sort of adds in things like um, carrots and sort of selectively adds in uh, sort of uh, different plants for different nutrients, uh, but uh, it's it's kind of related to the carnivore diet, so it could be interesting. Could be a good article for you guys. Look, I mean, for me, I don't. I know for a fact I don't do well with rice, mm-hmm. so that diet wouldn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Again. Everyone's different, right? Sure. That's why I think it's so important that we really understand how we're different by analyzing genetics and labs and and different symptoms. So if you succeed in all of your endeavors, what does the parent company look like in 5, 10, 20 years? Well, I mean, this this is not something that is a, you know, short – it's not a short-term goal, right? There's no – it's like if Google succeeds, right? They're going to take over the world if they <laughs> completely succeed. Sure. There's no, you know, by like not being evil, they'll <laughs> right. they nicely take over. I mean, the world. they'll they'll build an AI bot that can figure out everything and and take over the world, right? The AI bo- the AI bot is going to take over the world. I mean, the answer is is that these things are on a continuum of success. Where Google's mission is, let's say, to organize all of the world's information and for you to find the best information. That right away in the easiest way and you know basically that that's a mission that doesn't ever stop really mm-hmm. it's like the mission of figuring out what the ideal thing for you will never stop and and at some point like maybe it could be 20 years uh the crispr technology is good enough i, I was speaking to uh someone who who's an advisor in the company and he worked directly on crispr so he knows what he's talking about there. Brilliant guy. And he said that he de- like the technology is definitely going to be there if it isn't even already there where you can take out or modify a SNP. The problem that we have is validating and making sure that we're not going to do other damage in the body while that's being done. right? So it could in the future be something like figuring out which vector or virus to insert to change out these 50 or 1,000 SNPs into something that would, like, fix you without having to take any pills, right? Mm-hmm. That's potentially something um, 20 years from now. But, again, that would have to involve a lot of clinical uh, science because you're, you're dealing with new things that we don't know if you switch out one variation, what how that's going to impact, whether it's going to impact other variations. Sure. So right now – Modifying your genome might classify as a, dra- a drastic action, but in the future, hopefully it won't, and you'd be interested in that when the risks are lower. 
A hundred percent. But in the meantime, I mean, it's we, we we already have a big enough goal of I mean, th this you have so many genes, there's so many interacting variables. There's the microbiome, there's symptoms, there's all the labs. There's there's so much data out there, and to try and synthesize it and predict what is going to be the best for you, and then we would have to have a clinical trial in order to validate it that at some point to show that our model works. And then you would use AI and to also help you figure out um, what people are actually doing and how that's helping them as well. So th there's actually a lot of ways to try to predict. One of them is an AI approach, basically looking at people who are doing X and seeing what worked for them, right? So And we're collecting that data with the new version. And so at some point we want to, you know, that's going to be one of the approaches in figuring out what is most likely to work for someone. Uh, basically taking, you know, s taking a large population and seeing you have this gene and this is what worked for you with, th with this condition or whatever. Um, so that, that would involve AI and then, but also it would, it would have to be like a, m uh, you know, a multi-factor model taking into account a whole bunch of information that, and and it, it's a never-ending process of trying to be more and more accurate. It's 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 a long, you know, it's 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 a long game to be a hundred percent accurate a hundred percent of the time. Sure. So that that makes total sense. So there's a long way to go to get people to what we believe is the current gold standard of healthier or where they should be. And you know, you mentioned biohacking, and biohacking also has a lot of roots or aspirations uh, that are sort of sci-fi-esque. You mentioned that you fixed a lot of your problems that originally put you on this path. Are you still tweaking and optimizing your routine? What, when are you finished, if at all? What is the, what is the ultimate goal? Do you want to be merged with a cyborg and have the, you know, the, the human part be per perfectly genetically optimized? Or what, what are you going for? Yeah, so, I mean, in the short term, I'm always doing optimizations. Again, it's not a full-time job as it was, um, you know, eight or nine years back, but I'm doing optimizations now all the time. Uh, even if it's nicotine, you know, what form is best? I'm, I'm, I have the gum in my mouth right now. <laughs> you know, I've tried a whole bunch of other factors. Um, yeah, there, there's just 20 different types of nicotine that you can try. Um, but, yeah, I mean... So uh, I'm, uh, there, there's the constant experimentation with that. Um, right now, one of my experiments is microdosing LSD. I've been on and off with those kinds of experiments for a while. Did you take a microdose of LSD recently? I took one today, yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking to someone who is currently on a microdose of LSD? Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good to know. I couldn't tell. But then again, we, we haven't spent too much time face-to-face. -face. What, uh, what do you feel like uh, are the benefits or drawbacks associated with that? Well, I, I really like it. First of all, um, since I understand the biochemistry of, of uh, these food sensitivities, part of it has to do with the serotonin receptors. And LSD actually works very strongly on those receptors, and it's also potent anti-inflammatory. So LSD has actually reduces my symptoms to certain categories of foods. For some reason, each category has its own effect on me, right? Mm. What some categories seem to be like antibody mediated, such as like gluten and dairy and eggs, right? 
and and doesn't seem like LSD helps so much for that. But for fruits or something, it seems to help quite a lot mm. for uh, whatever reason, right? <laughs> but um, you know, again, these are just uh, continuous experiments. So, but the benefits I get from it: number one is it reduces my sensitivities. Number two is uh, it improves wakefulness for me, and I don't I don't get any kind of visual effects or anything like that. When you if you dose it right, you're not you're not if you're getting visual effects or you look like you're on LSD. <laughs> if you if you said, hey, you know what? I actually it seems like you are on LSD <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm not doing it right. <laughs> so it's actually you're not supposed to notice any change in me, right? Um, but wh what it does, it makes me about you know five to ten percent happier, depending on how much I take. Uh, if you take a lot, it could make you a lot happier. But you know, <laughs> just just microdosing can make you five or ten percent happier. Um, improves mood. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like last night. I just I I didn't I didn't sleep that much. I I mean I I went to sleep late because I disrupted my rhythm which i shouldn't be doing but i did and you know in the morning um it, that the microdose just kind of puts me in a more blank slate without being like groggy because i disrupted my rhythm so it helps with that and so let's say that you decide that the microdosing is something that you find to be very useful is this something that you would incorporate into your daily routine indefinitely P potentially i mean I've I've been incorporating it for about six months. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just interesting. I, I I try to take whatever, like whatever is suited for me. I don't just take 150 pills, right? Or you know, I I really try to target it with what's suited for me, and I do that with genetics, lab tests, and just the symptoms and my subjective experience. What am I being helped on? So I took pregnenolone every day for. Uh, like seven years and for some reason that's that's a, a precursor drug to uh, it's a precursor hormone which you can get over the counter in the US mm -hmm. you can buy it online mm -hmm. on Amazon wherever okay it goes and it converts to DHEA uh, which converts into a testosterone and mm -hmm. estrogen so it it's the mother of these sex hormones sure and I found for a while that it helped me um, I found increased wakefulness, improved mood. Now, there were some negative effects on it. It made me a bit edgy, um, like impatient. And I'm already not the most patient person. Okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, it kind of made me like a little like we got to get this done right now, which is not bad, you know, in, in work or whatever. But if, if, if there's already a high stressful event, then it could make it more stressful. So th there were some negatives, but the, the positives exceeded the negatives. And I was taking it every day for seven years. For some reason, I stopped and I didn't feel like I had any worse. Like, I think once once I started taking the microdosing LSD, it seemed to basically fix whatever the pregnenolone was doing, like the improved wakefulness, mood, things like that. Have you considered... Uh more traditional f psychiatric or pharmaceutical interventions like an SSRI or something like that. I hear, I hear mood as being, you know, a frequent concern. Is that something that you've considered? Well, n well, first of all, my mood right now is 
really good in general in general not like at this exact i mean at sure. this moment well it's hopefully also it's good, good. <laughs> hopefully you're having a good time. but in in general the pa- you know uh, over time my mood is pretty good so there's no mood issues now which means that um yeah i wouldn't want to take uh something that ssris have they they, they, they take time to work number one mm-hmm. um so it could take some time to work by because it has to it takes time to decrease certain of the serotonin receptors but um certain bad ones and you know increase the good ones but it's something that you it's not like you can take it and just get off of it It, it's something that in order to have clinical effect you take it for a while and then it takes time to get off of it you can't just stop Mm -hmm. um and and some people had serious you know, th- some people completely lose their libido from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some side effects from it. So for me, it w- the the equation of benefits to risks wouldn't make sense. Seems like a more drastic intervention to yes. you than some of these other ones. Um, pregnenolone, there's no such thing that, you know, you just stop taking it one day, you're fine. <laughs> sure. It's like, I wouldn't want to take anything that if I stopped taking it, I would have problems. Like, I, w- I have to taper off over a long time. Um, you know, I've experimented with thyroid hormones just to see what it was like, but that was one of the problems why I didn't want to even, uh, I didn't want to continue it like for a prolonged period. I didn't want to get, it's very hard to get off thyroid hormones once you're on it because mm-hmm. it down regulates your own production. And then you got to be very careful about getting off. Sure. Same thing with benzodiazepines, right? That's probably the worst. You get on it, you got to try to get off of it. You'll have seizures yeah. right away. So you have to get off of it over a real long time. You have some stories where people never get o- like they they never recover from these benzos, and so that's that's I would I would say is you know pretty more drastic. But I, I anything that falls into one of these categories, I would not want to do. Um, I would not say that nicotine even falls into this category, even though some people might argue it does. I've taken nicotine and just gotten off of it for six months without any symptoms. No problems, right? Um, again, how likely someone is to be addicted to it is also a genetic factor. There's sure. a bunch of SNPs and genes related to it. But for me, it doesn't seem to be a problem, which, like, I can get on it. I can get off of it. Especially smoking is more addictive for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I would I, – I experimented with smoking at some points just to see, like, you know, just casually, whatever, mm-hmm. bum a cigarette. I, I it's more i could see why that's more addicting nicotine itself doesn't is not addicting for me Mm. i don't i don't feel like if i stop i even think about it right Mm. but again it's it's a unique thing um nicotine in you know studies show that it it is addictive sure but it's it's hard to sometimes um separate that from other components in tobacco that are that are even more addict that 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 kind of synergize with the nicotine and make it a lot more addictive well you're, you're speaking my language there certainly I, I i couldn't agree more um i think yeah there it comes down to individual risk and also comes down to uh, as you said the the potential consequences or side effects of the particular chemical so being very addicted to uh, benzodiazepines uh is in my opinion worse um so yeah couldn't agree more my approach to drugs and supplements in general is to use them as tools. Mm-hmm. It's not to get hooked on them, any supplement or anything, right? Nicotine is a tool. Mm-hmm. THC is a tool. 
mm -hmm. right? I use these tools. Mm -hmm. They're not something that I personally do every day. Like I do, I wouldn't want to take pot every day. Mm -hmm. Do you drink alcohol? Once in a blue moon, once mm -hmm. a month, maybe. Uh -huh. Not a lot. Sure. Um, not even because I feel that bad from it, just because in order for me to really like it or have significant effects from it, I have to drink a lot. Right. And um, and then I feel it the next day. Sure. It's just like, it's not good for my brain. Mm -hmm. So and it, it's just not something that really does it for me. It's sure. not my, I mean, THC is amazing. Mm -hmm. That if I were to want to, you know, mess up my next day, it would be with smoking pot, <laughs> 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 not with drinking a lot of alcohol. <laughs> sure. But um, I mean, I don't, you know, but but THC is used as a tool uh, for me if I have a food, a very bad food reaction, if I'm trying to go to sleep and I disturb my rhythm. So maybe if I'm traveling, mm -hmm. uh, nicotine also is good when I'm traveling. If uh, what about caffeine? Doesn't do it, it's just not it doesn't work for me. Really? It doesn't work for me. It, it makes me tired, but wired. Whoa. So it kind of makes me more jittery, less able to focus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just not my. Uh, if I need a stimulant, I definitely go to nicotine. No question about it. Well, well, uh, that sounds like a great place to to end it. Just because <laughs> it's uh, such a uh, glowing opinion of nicotine. Uh, we did not rehearse this. I appreciate it. Um, Joe, thank you so much for for joining us today. Really appreciated your perspective. Yeah, it was great being here. Thanks, man.